You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. This is Dr. Saba Marouf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Achilles and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fist. And clearly I don't see myself upon that list, but she said, where'd you want to go? How much you want to risk? I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts, some superhero, some fairy tale bliss, just something I can turn to, somebody I can kiss. I want something just like this. Do 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 do. Oh, I want something just like this. Happy Friday to our live listeners and a warm welcome to all. I am your host, Dr. Saba Marouf, and I want to welcome you to our fourth episode of our new podcast here on Podcast Detroit, Unsung Heroes, Uncovering Stories of Inspiration and Action. On this podcast, we showcase ordinary people, pivotal moments, resilience, and extraordinary contributions. My aim is to find and share stories of unique people who are making a difference, each in their own individual ways using their talents, sparked by their passion. Today's episode is entitled Building Bridges and Community Connections, and our guest today is Steve Spritzer. I am so honored and humbled to welcome Steve to our show. I know many of our listeners have been looking for ways to be involved in our own local communities, and many of you have been more engaged with local groups and organizations lately. I know many of my friends and colleagues have felt inspired in the current political climate to build bridges, alliances, and make sure our voices are heard. Today, I'm excited to talk to Steve particularly because he has been doing this for a long, long time. In fact, I would say over it's been over 20 years. Uh, I know personally, I see Steve everywhere, um, whether it's a charity event or a fundraising dinner um, in my local Muslim community or here or there or an interfaith event. Uh, most recently, we saw each other at an event that was held in my city of Troy uh, on building alliances against hate crimes. Steve is everywhere, and he has been active here in our region for a long time. So I thought he would be the perfect person to speak to as a source of inspiration and information and hopefully give you a spark you might need if you want to get involved but aren't really sure how. So Steve is the president and CEO, um, here's just a few words about him, CEO of the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity and Inclusion. He received his master's in social work from Michigan State University, where he studied in the role of the faith community in the criminal justice system. He currently works with a team of passionate colleagues helping to make the places we work and live become places where all people are welcomed and treated fairly. He's received recognition from the Hindu American Foundation, Metropolitan Christian Council, World Sabbath for Religious Reconciliation, the Council of Islamic Organizations of Michigan, now known as the Michigan Muslim Community Council, um, the Interfaith Leadership of uh, Council of Southeast Michigan, and the Catholic Youth Organization. He lives in Plymouth, Michigan, with his wife, Mary, of 29 years, and they have three adult children. 
So just a few words about the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity Inclusion. Uh, This is a 75-year-old human relations and social justice organization. The roundtable addresses the mistreatment and marginalization of people through three core program areas. The first is youth leadership development. Second is cultural competency and organizational development. And third, community engagement. They do their work through education, leadership development, and convening conversations between law enforcement, business, government, education, the faith community, and interested citizen citizens. Steve describes a roundtable as a place where we use our leverage, uh, we, we leverage our history and goodwill by bringing the necessary partners together to make this a better community and state for all of us. So welcome, Steve. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you, Saba. Um, thank you for taking time out mm-hmm. to be with us. Um, and also, oh, and I'm also here uh, with um, my friend and co-host, Calvin Moore. Hey, I'm here again. What's up? <laughs> hmm. Nice to see you. Um, and this is, like, as I mentioned, this is our fourth episode. Um, so, you know, we have had a good head start. And I'm, I'm excited to have you here mm, in you. the studio. I think mm. it definitely makes for a different dynamic. And it's good to have all of us here. And mm. Jess is also here on helping us here with the soundboard. Hello. So welcome, everybody. Thanks. It's always nice to be seen. Always nice to be welcome back. Yes. Um, Okay. So, Steve, you know, with this introduction, uh, I think our listeners kind of got an idea of a little bit of what you've Mm. been involved with the um, last 20-something years. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've really dedicated your life to celebrating diversity and creating communities of inclusion. When would you say, or if you can just, you know, talk a little bit about your background mm-hmm. or, and when did you realize that this was something that you were passionate about? Yeah. So, um, interesting. I was raised in a town called Livonia, actually born in Royal Oak, but the family, most of my growing up was in Livonia, which has, has had the distinction of being the largest all white city in the United States. That's for populations of a hundred thousand or more. I think mm-hmm. now they're 970,000, but Livonia, is not unlike any town in suburban Southeast Michigan. That is to say, they, they addressed how they would keep themselves white. Yep. My and hands are always at 10 and 2 when I drive through Livonia. Right. For just, sure. Just this morning, yeah, we were with that. the Livonia police chief at our police and community re- meeting talking about how he's working against that, that gravitational pull, that supremacist history. Uh, Livonia was a sundown town. And for those of you who mm-hmm. don't know, a sundown mm-hmm. town, uh, there's a great book out by James Lowen. But essentially, as African-Americans came north and helped build our cities and this country, folks would say, well, where are you staying tonight? And if they planned on being in that town after sundown, they would be put in jail. And there are a few towns still in this country who have those laws in the book. So, Really? I did not know that. So as I go around working with communities to address how they honor the difference in their growing diversity, you know, what mitigates against inclusion, right? And so certainly our history is part of that, whether it's in Gross Point where they had the point system. Mm-hmm. And so the realtors work together to find out how to keep people out. Every town, it's not any that any one town is worse than the other per se. It was just more human nature. And I think the structural racism of Southeast Michigan created, the segregation created spaces where so many of us grew up isolated from the other. We grew up in racially and religiously homogenous communities. And growing up in Livonia, that was that was what Livonia was. Coupled with that, I had a, a dad. Um, I had a mom and dad. I mean, a pretty good family upbringing, right? Um, but my dad had been abused physically as a kid growing up. He grew up in northern Minnesota. He had no concept of difference until the Korean War. And the black and white sailors were just, the, there was tension. And so my dad, uh, 
If you don't experience the other by middle school, by adolescence, you're at risk of being what I would call relationally delayed. The bigot word mm-hmm. sounds so harsh, so I try to temper that. That, that, that. But and that, but that's the story of so many of us. We've not met someone until we hit adolescence and peer pressure, and you're just not as equipped to appreciate and value because you're you're carving out your own space and what others think matters. So you stick with your peer group. So, uh, yeah, so I was raised by a father who was uh, also, I mean, many people who were abused returned the favor. It's, uh, mm-hmm. It was hard on me as a parent not to physically abuse my kids, so I, <laughs> if my dad was here, but uh, anyway, so, yeah, so it, it was, uh, I, I, I got my share of physical abuse, right? And so every day it's something I have to deal with. I mentioned that because my dad was also... Uh, also had trouble with the other. And so I remember growing up, he was cursing Cassius Clay on the television. You know, for folks who didn't have a healthy relationship with black, white folk who didn't have a healthy relationship with uh, black folk, they, uh, they had trouble with this bravado of Cassius Clay mm-hmm. and the, you know, these, uh, self-assured, uh, black men of the day that, that scared him, I think. And so I was wondering why was he cursing the television? But like many, People, 15% of the population, my dad was also, didn't like anybody else. I mean, he sent money to Anita Bryant to work against gay people. I mean, it just, it was a consequence of where he was from and I think how he was parented. Because there's also research in the attachment, adult attachment theory that if you're in a harsh parent, parenting style or a laissez-faire parenting style, that you aren't going to develop secure attachments. And there's research that says about 15% of the people don't like anyone. Anyway, so there's my dad. <laughs> right. Equal opportunity offender. Yeah, right. God love him. I mean, and, and there was a lot of good times. And I had a mom who was, was wonderful, but I also was abused by someone who was bigoted. And so, um, so I think that stayed with me. And so when you ask about, you know, how I got this into this, I think that as I got older, I realized that while there maybe was no one there to stop the abuse I was experiencing as my mom was working as a nurse and I was home with my dad, uh, who's there to look out for people that relationally challenged people are abusing now? And how can we stop the harm to our friends of color, our friends who are Muslims, our friends who are gay? And how can we make sure that they don't suffer any new harm because there's been a lifetime of harm? And so uh, how do we stop the internalization of race and homophobia and Islamophobia so uh, people are proud of who they are, right? So that started for me at an early age, but then I started to meet people who were different. So, um, the, when I was in, um, 10th grade, my friend's mom had us volunteer at the Plymouth State Hospital and Training School. So there was a time in our history where if your kid had Down syndrome, hydrocephaly, mm-hmm. or some of these other maladies, you could be institutionalized and pa- families, some doctors encouraged them to send their kid away to the, to the state hospital. And so, uh, there was one out in Plymouth and, um, I started volunteering there as a 10th grader. And I remember my first day, I spent a half hour in a room, a padded room, like a wrestling room with a child with hydrocephaly. We don't see hydrocephaly anymore because they do research. Uh, they have a procedure now called a shunt where mm-hmm. the water on the brain is what hydrocephaly was. It was a child whose head was twice the size of his body. And it might have been a 20, 30 year old person, but they were in diapers on the floor and I was left in this room. And it was like, oh, you know, OMG, right? I mean, but it was a way to, I guess, break you to see if you could uh, make it as a volunteer there. And so whether it was that or working with a student who was blind in high school, why I got asked to do these things, I don't know. But there's a Jesuit scholar who says that when we experience the power of the creator working through us at a young age, you know, that sense of being valuable and meaning and meaningfully engaged, we're ruined for life. That is to say, our balance or equilibrium is only realize when we're in those relationships. So we almost have this uh, pull back toward that. You're never the same, right? You have to be involved in that type of work because you've experienced the power 
of being faithful to, uh, to that, that kind of action. So those things, I don't know if that all makes sense to you guys, but for me, just growing up, these things were happening. And then while my dad is cursing Cassius Clay, I'm at a Catholic school with African American nuns. So there's only one group of black nuns in the country that came from Baltimore to, to Livonia, Michigan. How does that happen, right? It's the largest all-white city. My dad's cussing, you know, my dad's got his thing about black folk. And now my teachers are black nuns. And then I learned their story that they weren't allowed to be nuns wherever they came from, Philadelphia, wherever they came from in the country. And so they all went to the, the convent in Baltimore because for some reason they still wanted to serve as religious leaders in the Catholic community. And then they came to serve me. And, you know, talk about feeling like you don't deserve it. But I was receiving this, and it was in the year 2000 that I was at a conference in UCLA, a Jubilee Justice Conference. And 2000 was this year. Some thought Y2K, the world's going to end. But mm-hmm. some religious communities believed that there was a, a year of Jubilee, like a year to really reflect and celebrate. So there was an, a member of that group of nuns, the Oblate Sisters of Providence, during the reconciliation period, talked about her life journey to becoming a nun and all her sacrifices. And I'm in the audience realizing that she was part of that group of black nuns that served me. I started getting teared up and I ran up to the stage afterwards and gave her the biggest hug while I'm crying. And she's like, security, you know, <laughs> but it just struck me, you know, just that, you know, so then in retrospect that, that being able to become someone who reaches out and cares for the other is, and even has insights to all of my privilege, you know, mm-hmm. everything seems to be normed around my experience as a heterosexual, white, able-bodied male Christian, uh, Right. I'm so privileged and short of people helping me open my eyes, move beyond ignorance to an awareness of what what that means to be the dominant culture, the dominant religion, the dominant sexual identity. Um, and that there are others who, as a result of my privilege, uh, had a lack of privilege. And, and, and uh, so so all to say that I got to where I am today because of a countless number of people uh, who have helped me. Uh, and thank God most were gentle. Because it's a lifelong journey. It's like peeling an onion the size of Rhode Island and there are no awards. There's more tears than anything. You just, you just go toward the other. You listen. And so you listen. And it's through that listening that you find out where you might have utility or value, how you become what we call an ally. So I've said a lot. I'm not trying to run to this interview all in one question. Well, those are just, uh, just a few thoughts to start. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. That's, you can keep going. I just love listening to you. Yeah. I I had a question that came out of that just because you talked about uh, your father. And normally when, when I see a kid, okay, so Donald Trump becomes president and you see these kids in this middle school in Royal Oak saying, build the wall, build the wall. Right. And so most people looked at that and framed it in such a way where they said, you know, that is, that's learned behavior. You know, you've been taught, those children have been taught to hate. And so you were raised in a situation, despite the people that you met, um, who, you know, you had good soft conversations, more tears than anything, which is great, uh, that moved you towards the place that you're in now, but you're still the, the people that we love most are generally our mom and our dad and our brothers, right. your, your nuclear family. Right. And what they instill in us is generally what we put out into the world more than anything else. And so I'm wondering how you dealt with a father who was, you know, you, you've self-confessed, you know, bigoted and would say things about, you know, Cassius Clay. And, you know, um, how did you come out of a situation like that and not go into the situations where you are meeting people that your dad didn't like, but you're having a different perspective? Yeah. Well, well, thanks. That, I would have to say it's a process. And to all of our listeners who are on a journey toward racial justice and toward equality, that it, it, it takes a long time. So 
10th grade football, Livonia Bentley High School, playing Belleville. I call my dad after the game. Dad, I tackled a black guy, right? I'm wanting his praise. And I'm now thinking, I don't even want to admit that to you guys. It's embarrassing as heck. Hmm. Uh, freshman year of college, a group of guys are going to rough up a gay man who's a nurse. I thought about going with them for a minute. I didn't go, thank God. Uh, but I was a bystander. That guy got hurt that night. And I, 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 you know, that was so, you know, I'm 60 now, but I mean, it, it took a long time. I'm still getting insights about, even with my wife the other day, they were talking about the presidency and how, uh, this current president's, uh, negative impact on women. I mean, some women might not see that. It's just not in their own internalized sexism. It could be any number of things. But I, I was able to deny the impact of this president uh, that many people are feeling because it didn't hit me the same way. But right. as my wife spoke about it as a woman, you know, so I'm still like, oh, man. And I, I'm in community groups with people purposely so I can feel the pulse or hear from mm-hmm. my Muslim friends. Like, I'm a, I don't know if I want my daughter to wear the hijab because I don't want her to be a target because the Muslims that get it the most are the m- women and their children because they're, you can't hide. You're wearing a hijab. You must be a Muslim. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just such a pro to your question. It takes a long time and we're never done with it. Right. Yeah. Amazes some of the thoughts. And, and then, then the other part is the courage to, uh, to encounter someone who's, who's not that far on the journey yet or isn't maybe started. I mean, 62% of the public Pew study said don't know a Muslim. Well, they probably don't know a Sikh or a Hindu. They probably haven't been to a black church or a barbecue. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the legacy of our racially segregated community. We don't know each other. So I was with a judge the other day, and he had been mistreated a black woman in the courtroom. Clerk for Judge Damon Keith. She's a very, very good, uh, accomplished woman. Her son ended up in trouble. The three white students in a fight in the high school ended up in teen court. He ends up before the judge. You know, we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. Right. What is that? Well, here's a just a teaser of what it's like. So here she is, uh, went through law school. The last thing for her that her kid would end up in trouble. She goes before the judge. I think she's embarrassed. She's treating him like an equal. She's an attorney. She's clerking for a civil rights icon, Judge Damon Keith. And, and, and he starts to dress her down and treat her horribly in front of everyone in the courtroom. And I called him up and I said, Judge, um, let's go for a cup of coffee. You know, I heard about your experience in the courtroom and I'd love to, love to chat. You know, we, I've had a lot of people help me on my journey. And he, the first thing he said was, I'm not a racist. And I want to say, well, that's a pretty high bar you're setting for yourself, sailor. I mean, it's right. like, but I, I tried to just say, look, if you don't want to speak with me, find someone you can be vulnerable with, someone you can be honest with, because if you're going to be a leader in Southeast Michigan and you don't have a sense of, of race and race relations, uh, structural race, if you don't have a sense of this, you're not, you're not going to be able to serve because race impacts every aspect of our life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we never had that cup of coffee, but there are plenty of people, uh, that are for us to reach out to in yeah. all of our communities. Yeah. And it's very mm-hmm. tough to be in that spot. Like, um, I don't know if Saba's let you know, but I have, I have another show here on the podcast Detroit Network called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. And we do panel discussions every week on different topics and it's fantastic. Um, but this past week, there are issues surrounding feminism. Like you said, your your wife brought some stuff out to you. It doesn't impact you, but then your wife brought stuff out and you're like, oh my gosh, even at 60 years old, you're going, wow, okay, I'm learning some stuff here that I didn't know. Um, this past week, I had uh, four black women on the show. It was hosted by a black woman. I sat back, I sat over there doing, you know, just the audio, didn't say anything. Don't agree with everything about feminism, but also don't know everything about feminism and don't know necessarily how it affects ne- black women, even though those are a lot of the women that I'm closest mm-hmm. to in my life. And so it was really fascinating to sit back and listen in order to become a better ally. Like, okay, 
I don't know where you're coming from. Some of what you're talking about is a little bit over my head. Um, but I, I have a dictionary. <laughs> I, I have Google. I can, I can look some stuff up and we have, um, relational equity as well, where I can ask you mm-hmm. some questions and you know that I'm not trying to trap you and trap you with, you know, well, how can you say this? So I get that the, the fact that it's always a learning experience, but also kind of creating margin where I think you need margin on both sides to be able to have those difficult conversations. Sounds like you wanted to have a cup of coffee and there was no relational margin on the other side there That's yet. Right. So, right. but yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's some people aren't used to being vulnerable and for folks in law enforcement, folks, folks with authority, mm-hmm. folks who are leading corporations and they want to start a diversity initiative and then I'll just give it to their HR department, but right. aren't walking the talk and, uh, modeling from how they lead. So, uh, it, it takes a, a, a lot of humility to, I think, be in this space authentic because you can't bring that weak stuff, right? If you, if you aren't, if you just speak that you want to have, Everything be well for everyone, but you're not having any skin in the you're any skin in the game. So um, I'm I'm constantly brought to that that fact of how humbling this is. I just yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you have done and continue to do with the Michigan Roundtable? Sure, thanks. Interesting, you know, it, during this time that we're in, where we saw a, a real rough election, uh, where the bigotry was off the charts. We call it manufactured bigotry. Every four years, right? Every four years that happens. So it's maybe less about the candidates than it is this phenomenon that during these election cycles, we see hatred. Well, when our organization began in New York in 1927, the first uh, Roman Catholic ran for president, who was also Irish-American, and his name was uh, Al- Alvin, S- Alvin Smith. My, why am I, am I blanking? But uh, anyway, um, he ran for president, and um, the nativists of the day, uh, the Secret Society, the Klan, and others uh, were really bothered by all these immigrants coming over from Europe, Eastern Europe, and most of them were Catholics. That's right. So when Albert Smith ran for president, they uh, felt they had public license to hate him. And Catholic churches were burned to the ground. People were beaten and killed, actually. And it's not unlike 2008 when Senator Barack Hussein Obama from Illinois ran for president because people felt they could take their hate public. But back in 2000, I'm sorry, 1921, this was... Uh, this is pretty rough. So they formed the Michigan, they formed the National Conference for Community and Justice, NCCJ, and um, we formed in 41. So our organization has a history of standing with people who are uh, mistreated because of their identity. And so the fact that we're doing work in Islamophobia, it's simply that's in our DNA as an organization. And plus, for 25 years, I've worked with the Muslim community. And so I have so many friends that... Um, it's an. It's like I'm giving my love back to the love I've received. But but we uh, we work to make sure people understand who Muslims are. We make sure that they uh, we're building allies. Um, that's a real important thing because as we know, far too many people they don't know anyone who's Muslim. So our work of the roundtable now, though, after all these years, is in is a, across a continuum from coming to know the other to uh, then caring about the other and then becoming an ally. And so we do that in um, some different spaces. One is we have a youth program where for 14 months, young people are paid to be interns. And so we kind of harness that energy. Those of you who have had kids, they might have, you might have heard your kids say, that's not fair. Uh, that's not fair. They know they have this intuitive sense of what mm-hmm. fairness is. So our 14-month internship helps them become leaders in that space of transformational justice. And so they get paid. So that's one thing that we do to help those folks uh, go out into their communities and lead in a new way. Um, we work in businesses and organizations. So whether it's Oakland County government, whether it's Comerica Bank, we help shape workplaces where that allows people to bring their whole selves into the workplace and, and have that sustained through organizational development, policies, procedures, performance metrics, right? So that's another part of our work. 
Uh, and then this broader community engagement area, it's anchored in our racial justice work. So in 2006, when there was a ban on affirmative action, we started to get into this space of checking white privilege and white supremacy. Prior to that, that hadn't been our space. And so what did that mean? That, that meant we had to, uh, we had to help people understand that. So one of the first things we did was we, we did a mock trial at Wayne State Law School and we put the FHA on trial for their role in housing segregation. Um, I think most people had no clue that the way things look today was by design. Right. The redlining. Exactly. It, and, and instead we moralize poverty that there's something wrong with those folk. Well, actually, the fact that they folk, most white folk live in poverty, two thirds of poverty is are folks who are white, but they live, they're diffuse, they're spread out around regions, they aren't mm-hmm. concentrated. So we had this uh, trial so people could understand that the current day racial inequities, which I've heard it as much as 25 to one. So every dollar you might have, Calvin, I might have $25 or it's so out of whack and it's progressed. When Can Dr. I borrow $25? <laughs> yeah, well, when Dr. King spoke here in the sixties, the wealth gap was like 12 to one. So these structural inequities keep bearing un, unhealthy dividends. And until we fix it structurally, it's not like you can throw some goop on your windshield because you get that first chip. This is a crack across the windshield that just keeps getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So we have to address uh, structural racism, racial inequity in, in, a, in, a, in a holistic way. Uh, and and that's, a, that's part of the work that we do in our racial justice work. But one of the keys was just understanding our history. So we created a housing exhibit called We Don't Want Them that tells a story from the Great Migration of the 1900s mm-hmm. to 1968, 69. What happened when blacks came north to get away from Jim Crow? What did they experience? Well, Jim Crow had kinfolk, but they just had invisibility cloaked. But the same consequence, the mistreatment and the marginalization of people of color. So the exhibit has been seen by 300,000 people, curated by the Charles Wright African American Museum. And we have a K-12 curriculum. It was also replicated by the Michigan Humanities Council when they did the Great Michigan Read on the Arc of Justice by uh, Kevin Boyle about mm-hmm. Ashen Sweet. Uh, so we use that as a tool. And these last four months, it's been booked, both exhibits, first time ever. I guess that's the Trump dividend, right? People are looking for ways to mm-hmm. get their arms around this because we know that the bigotry that exists here wasn't created by Mr. Trump. It has existed for hundreds of years. Yep. And while while people may be less worried about being politically correct, like the Roseville school board member who tweeted mm-hmm. horrible things about Muslims and blacks and said, so what are you going to do? Um that may be a new phenomenon that people are less worried about. And, and that's good. Emboldened for people. racism. Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. right. People of color have known all along. I mean, they can almost sense when they're in the company of someone who's bigoted or relationally challenged. So much more to say that. But, uh, so, so we're involved in that racial justice work. We have the exhibit. We have our first Friday forums. So tonight we're going to be at the historic Hartford Baptist Church looking at race and religion. We've looked at race and water four and a half years because mm. spatial racism is what structural racism leads to. And so structural racism is when institutions gather together to disadvantage people of color. So around housing segregation, it was the banks. It was the government. It was the real estate agents, right? They came together and devised a plan that was built on the Chicago Board of Trade, how they found out to make housing segregation work. So anyway, uh, we also uh, do a... Um, well, you got whole cities that way. I mean, the Home Rule yeah. Act of 1909. Come on. Henry Ford used that to to create... Uh, what Highland Park as a as a tax haven for his first uh, for his first factory. Most people think that his first factory was in Dearborn. It was actually in Highland Park. His second one was in Dearborn. But then he also used it to create Inkster and Dearborn. Dearborn was for his white workers, and Inkster was for his black workers. Mm-hmm. So you could work together on the same lines. Right. But you sure as hell weren't going to live together in the same neighborhoods. And so yeah, that that's just one way that people used innocuous laws. 
that had nothing to do with race in racial ways. It's kind mm-hmm. of really, and you can look at it today. You could still look through Detroit and see, you know, how Detroit is cut up in very interesting ways. 139 square miles of land, 142 if you include water, but 139 square miles of Detroit. And it's cut up in all these different ways. And you have all this abandoned land, 20 square miles of it is abandoned land. And people think, oh, you know, Detroit is blight. You'll see all these documentaries and they'll pass by all these blighted out buildings. And we do have it. But how did we get there? You know, we had right. two million people up until 1950 started moving out because of, you know, all the manufacturing moving out of, you know, out of the country, out of the, right. you know, out of the you know, city, state, country. And then we built houses in the in the region until 2008 as if we still had two million people. We had 750,000, 720,000. I'm sorry. Not that people are going to fact check that. But anyway, 720,000 people. Uh, in the region, not able to sustain it all because of this rule from 1909 that's been used in racial, in racial ways to keep the, the races segregated. And so then 2008 hits, we have the biggest housing bubble burst mm-hmm. in the United States history. So it's really interesting just kind of play, piggybacking off of the historical aspect. A lot of people think that stuff happened in a vacuum that, mm-hmm. Hey, today is when racism began. We can end it tomorrow because it just started today. If we nip it in the bud today. <laughs> We'll be able to take care of it tomorrow. But like, no, there's a longstanding, almost tradition. I hate to use the word tradition because of the religious connotations of the word tradition, but almost a longstanding tradition of um, disenfranchising people of color. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that. In this country, in this area. Yeah. Thank you, Calvin. I'm going to share my stipend with you. (laughs) (laughs) If you you didn't know that. So here I am. uh, My son is 25 now, but when he was a young boy, I would bring him. We live in Plymouth, but we would drive into the 4-H club on the east side to play basketball. He would play with the other guy's kids. And and I remember him, first thing he said was, Dad, why are all the people at this McDonald's black? And it was like, because living in Plymouth, they're all white. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sadly to say. So um, there are 87 African-Americans that live in Plymouth. 87. And my friend Yasser Kogali, shout out to you, Yasser, told me that. He, (laughs) He and his wife, Lauren, he's a Sudanese Muslim who moved to Plymouth, and uh, he's very mindful. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about Yasser in a second. But so my son says to me, and I try to explain to him about that. And and so we're driving back on to get on the 94 to leave his time in Detroit with me. And he notices a bunch of garbage on the side of the road. And he says to me, why don't those people take care of their stuff, daddy? Because where we live, that's not his experience. And so he's making, God love him, but he's a six-year-old. I explained to him a disinvested tax base and I explained to him these things and he gradually came to understand it. But we have grown men and women that hadn't had that talk mm. with their dad and mom right. and they are moralizing poverty and making conclusions about people. And, uh, it's just really sad because short of electroconvulsive therapy with some folks getting them to have these insights once they firm these ideas, yeah. right? Going back to Allport saying you should get to people before adolescence. So now it, uh, makes the work hard, right? But, but it's a journey just. I think the key to this, you know, you had a, a question to me Saba, about how do we how do we move on the journey? And I think it's really through the stories with the other people. I, you know, I'm spiritual. I don't know how religious I am anymore, but I am spiritual. And I do believe that, that there is this creative force. I tend to go to where the Native Americans are with the, the Ojibwe speak of Kichimanatu, the creator who imbued goodness and and the spirit of the creator among I mean, in all things. And the spiritual journey is to discover it. Right. It's not a guy in the control booth making decisions discriminately, but it's a be- it, it, it works for me. I'm, I'm a state Michigan State guy. Pretty simple. But uh, go green. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it is the way the creator works, I think, is that when you're two souls meet, two minds meet, 
they make, oops, sorry, they make a connection, right? I'm putting my hands together for those of you listening, uh, my fingers sliding in against each other. But it's like that spidery web substance. You ever get a little on your finger when you're cleaning the house and you go to throw it away and it's still on your finger? I really think that's how the creator works. So if we can get people to meet the other and just have that uh, deeper, some deeper experience, I think that's when we lock them in and the creator can do the work. And the soul is a muscle, right? And, you know, those of you who train, you, you do your push-ups or your whatever, and you break the muscle down and you rebuild it. Relationships are like that. I think we break down our muscle of our way we think, the way we feel about people. And as you diversify who you know, you get stronger and you get more whole. Gandhi took it a step further and said, um, love is looking in the mirror and seeing the face of the other. I remember I first heard that. I was like, wow, that I so identify with the other that I see them when I look in the mirror, not me. And then another guy uh, who I appreciate, Thomas Donahue. There are many women. I appreciate you asked about who my heroes are. But Donahue said, love is the fidelity to the demand demands of a relationship. So the fidelity to the demands of a relationship. So, so my brother gets a divorce. I'm on the phone with him. I'm visiting him because I'm faithful to that relationship. Well, when I meet, I have a friend who's Muslim. And you see, you learn that they're experiencing Islamophobia or hate. Well, what does that call upon me to do? Um, when there's a terrorist act, I might call, how are you? I might, uh, I might ask how I can help. I might, um, study Islam or make sure more people, I'm helping more people come to know someone who's Muslim. Um, just some things about this, the work, you know, how do you go from being ignorant to knowing someone and caring about someone? I think it, uh, it all goes through the other person to coming yep. to know them. It's no, no short way around this. You can't go become an advocate mm-hmm. if you don't know the person you'd be advocating right. for, much less that's our privilege speaking. I'm going to put on my cape and I'm going to fly in as this white man. I'm going to fix things. Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Fix it for who? And how, how are you going to fix it? What, what if the way that person wants things fixed isn't? How right. do you know what that and what is? if you cause a problem in the first place? You're going to backpad after that? <laughs> after <laughs> fixing what you broke? But there, uh, uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu uh, wrote something along this line in a book called uh, No Future Without Forgiveness. So mm-hmm. he, he presided over the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. um, uh, meetings in, in South Africa, post, uh, post-apartheid South Africa. And the take one of the main takeaways I had in that book was this concept he talked about of Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Ubuntu mm-hmm. or this this boundedness. We are bound together. And it took a lot because you're talking about, you know, years and years of oppression in, in that country. And how are we going to was was he in South Africa or was he in Rwanda? I can't remember if it was South Africa or Rwanda. It's been a long, long time since I read the book. But either way, this uh this idea, this concept of Ubuntu, uh these people that have been at odds with each other don't realize you know, how much stronger they are together, mm-hmm. stronger together, not to, to bring up the slogan from this past yeah. election cycle. Yeah. But, uh, I do really believe that we are stronger together and that there is a boundedness that goes beyond. We have, we have common goals, but more a boundedness that is innate. We are humans on the same journey together. Mm-hmm. We are born. We live. We die. What do we do in the in-between, right? And so we are bounded together by this human experience. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about that in this book. I have to go back and read it because it was like <laughs> 15 years ago that I read this book now. But uh, just kind of appealing to some of the things that you were saying there, it it brought that that idea mm-hmm. back to mind there. Mm-hmm. So. And I think that's inspirational for, I mean, being a Muslim American too. I think that we 
sometimes, especially in this great community that we live in, we have very a very strong community here. But sometimes there's a tendency to even, I think, stay in our bubble and isolate ourselves. A few months ago, I started a book club, a social justice and activism book club. And part of that Which was... Which I was not invited to, by the way. I, did, I added you I on it. I, I think, think that was, was before I knew you. Yeah, I, I think it was. Stop the car. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was, I mean, actually, it was kind of on a whim because I was reading the new Jim Crow and I was like, you know what? This would be easier to read if I knew <laughs> that I was reading it with other people and we could discuss it. It's, I mean, that's a book that you really need to digest and take time with. Um, but... You know, it's not as someone that's a minority and a person of color at the same time, I can't I have to speak up. And this is what my religion teaches me too. I just speak up for injustice wherever I see it, whether it's against somebody else or against myself. Um, so, you know, I think that that is kind of what we're seeing now. And and definitely that's that's kind of what I was saying in the beginning is I know that a lot of people that I know do want to get involved, want to build those alliances and build those bridges. Again, work that you have been doing mm -hmm. for so long. So I guess what would you, when there are people um, that are like that, how would, like, I guess what, with, with that in mind, what are some ways that citizens mm -hmm. in this area can get involved if they too are passionate uh, about coalition building and mm -hmm. activism? Well, thank you. Um, I think that you start in your home community and the question is, who, who don't I know in my community? Um, so it would be uh, outreach. If there's a mosque in your community, have I been there? When the shooting took place at the Sikudwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin in 2014, a white supremacist came in and killed six members of the Sikh community. I got to say that slowly. But he, uh, no one knew those. They drove by that Gurdwara all the time, but they'd never been in there. This was some mysterious religion. So uh, too bad that it took the death of those people for them to come to really get, know and get their arms around that community that helped the Sikh community return a sense of safety, but also the whole community felt safe. So why wait until there's a tragedy? Mm -hmm. um, right now, um, they're, they're, I think that the people who didn't think Mr. Trump was going to be elected, we know that the supremacist groups were arming themselves, more militias were being formed. We know that Dylan Roof, who shot up the Mother of God AME Church in South Carolina, has kinfolk here. That is not blood relatives, but there are folks of his mindset that are here. And that scares me. They may shout out of their pickup truck at you as a Muslim or as a black man uh, or as a woman in general. But Amina Ahmed, my friend who may be listening to this on the radio, talked about research she had seen about bullying, that bullies engage when they know that there are certain number of bystanders. Yep. If those bystanders are allies, they likely won't engage. So hmm. I guess to your point, Saba, how do we... How do we move people along in their community so they know who might be at risk? They know who the other is um, and they can come to know them, listen to them and find out what it means to that person for them to be an ally, not presuming what it means to be an ally. So I think the first step is in your community to uh, find out who your neighbors are. Um, there are communities like right now in Rochester, they form the greater area Rochester Inclusion Network, and I think I call it GRAIN. I know I'm going to be speaking there in April 18th. This is awesome. We've gotten funding to help communities form citizen groups, just like we work in the workplace to form employee groups or how companies can sustain the way they honor different people in the workplace. How do they, how do they do that? Right? Well, why should it only be how you're treated in the workplace? How about when you go home and your daughter's hijab is pulled or the N word and your noose is painted on the locker? We need to shape the communities we live in. And I think it starts with just wherever you live, right? I know in Ferndale, Kat Latash and others are working to make Ferndale a more inclusive place. 
Ka'ed Sefi, a member of the Islamic mm-hmm. Association of Greater Detroit, has helped lead the Grain Group. Uh, I'm Plymouth Kent, and I'm working with a number of folks. We formed a beloved community just, you know, so I think that just as I said, like Livonia has a history, Gross Point, every community has a history, but every community has the people it needs to make itself whole, to make itself the beloved community. It's just that they aren't, they don't know each other. There's this anomie, right? And And so how do we bring people who care together and then get them thinking strategically about how to how to help the police force make sure they that the people they hire who all of us have the disease of racism that those people are inoculated right that they that their onboarding includes work with the local community to be trained not just in firing weapons but to really understand so they're checking their unconscious bias right the community is there to help the police force but oftentimes they're estranged they might be brought in when the police force needs them for some ornamental reason god forgive me but how do we create authentic police community relations i mean so that's another area how is your school Take a look at their school. Are there students of color in your school? How is the suspension policy? Are they in mm-hmm. your advanced placement classes? I mean, you know, there are things. You know, go look at your traffic court in the morning. In some communities that are largely white, the courts are 95% black. What? Why is that, right? So until you have an ear and an eye and a heart for this, you might not see it or know it. Recently, we were in a community and a clerk tweeted something or on Facebook, a message about Muslims. It was horrible. She ended up being removed. The leadership of the community actually all white, but they thought everything was fine in the community. And then a Muslim friend of mine and his wife went and shared what their life experiences was. People who work for the school district, a number of black folk, let them know, we don't come downtown to your restaurants. We don't feel comfortable. Their bubble was burst. But now what are you going to do with that information? Now that you know that, yeah, it might be fine for you. But if you want to be a welcoming community, much less an inclusive community, the mayor of Troy, the night I was with you, Saba, was mm-hmm. very proud about being the most diverse city in Michigan. And I didn't mean to poke at his fleshy underbelly, but I said, well, how about one day you could brag also about being the most inclusive city? Obviously, that that's something you probably never achieve, but are noted that you strive for it. Um, so t- you you had a question. I ramble a bit. This is what happens uh, to ADD kids I, I when a, we grow up. I have a question that kind of comes out of yeah. it, though. I, I, this is kind of how I think, like catching touch points here. Um, so earlier we talked about your dad and, you know, how do you overcome, you know, what you've, this learned behavior, uh, and, and you eloquently answered that. But then the other, the question is, how do you overcome culture, uh, a cultural understanding within America? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So Canada, uh, very communal, uh, more communal than people give it credit for, uh, Mexico, very communal, uh, Middle East, very communal. You have a lot of communal cultures, whereas in America, it is very self, uh, Self-sustaining, autonomous, individualistic, pull your, yeah, pull, yeah, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Fences make good neighbors, right? I, I my family, uh, well, you said there were eighty-seven black families in Livonia. Eighty-seven black people in Plymouth. in Plymouth. Black people in Plymouth. Okay, sorry. Um, my family was the second African American family ever to move into Gross Point Woods, Michigan. This mm. is in nineteen ninety-four. Okay, so nineteen ninety-four. Wow. Things have changed substantially once uh, Harper Woods became school of choice. You had. A lot more change there uh, and more people going to Gross Point North especially. But um, how do you – we live next to our neighbor who I think – this is before Facebook was a thing, but kind of early slacktivism. Oh, I'm white. This neighborhood has been white. My neighborhood is black – my my neighbor is now black. I exchanged a few words with them. Therefore, I'm doing – I've done my part, Mm. right? Um, I'm on Facebook now. Dead babies in Syria. Here's a picture. I put a sad emoji. I've done my part. It's kind of this slacktivism idea. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, how do you, like, I hear you because I'm wired the way you're talking. 
I'm wired where I, I want to know who's on the school board, what's going on in the schools. I want to know, you know, how can, you know, what is going on in the Sikh temple? What is going on in the, in the mosque? You know, what's going on in the white church and the black church? What's going on in, in you know, in the, uh, uh, in the synagogues? How can we call, all come together and have a, a meal together, mm-hmm. break bread and have conversations, tough conversations, things like that? I'm wired for that. Most people are not wired for that. I built a fence for a reason. I say, hi, I might invite you over for some steaks because I have a few extra. But other than that, let's not get into each other's lives, uh, especially when it gets down to the nitty gritty of, you know, how do we make the world a better place? Because it's pretty dark sometimes. So mm. the question is, how do you get people to overcome this cultural norm mm. of self-sufficiency, individuality, um, and fences make good neighbors? Mm. I'm looking at Saba, also over at Jessica. She's the silent partner. <laughs> She's running the show. Uh I think this is a question for all of us. Uh, it's a very difficult question. I, I think Allport's thesis in, in um, the nature of prejudice that we got to get to people before they hit middle school was by the time that stuff starts solidifying, it's really difficult to break it. Like the cement is drying. At this oh, point. my God. And the, the culture of individualism yeah. that you spoke of, Saba, is – and it's interesting because our, our religious traditions, there's such great hope because they all lift up a common uh, moral imperative – toward the other. I mean, whether it's that we're mm-hmm. called to ransom the stranger or we're called to um, welcome the stranger. Or, I mean, all these things we're called to do. And yet you see religious, the catechesis within the faith traditions fo- focus more on membership, become a good Catholic, become a good Episcopalian versus developing the psycho-spiritual strength that leads you to find your completeness in the other, right? Uh, it is that they're to do, they're just like almost seem mutually exclusive so that I think it's the competitive economic nature of religious traditions to build a business plan to sustain themselves that they become a servant to economics and that that plays out and just make sure these are good members that are keep paying their tithes, their dues. But um, it seems to have taken us away from the point you make about finding our completeness in the other, that somehow spiritually as a Christian – I might become more whole by knowing a Muslim. I mean, most people don't realize that, that in Islam, they, they, they could receive spiritual dividends that they have no clue. Muslims understand that the Christians and Jews, they call them cousins, people of the book. There's an organic spiritual relationship. Jews don't feel that for Christians and Christians don't feel that for Muslims, but it's to the loss of the Christians, right? So that the more Christians learn about Muslims, the more they're going to have a spiritual renewal. I mean, it is just to me, I don't know if that makes sense to you. But just the, the gift that Islam is bringing the West, the West needs Islam more than it knows. But yet, as you say, Calvin, there's this almost like they're wired to, to not receive those gifts because they're, yeah. Defenses are too high. Yeah. So I think, I, I, what do you guys think? I mean, Saba, do you have any thoughts about Calvin's tough question? That's <laughs> <laughs> what I do. That's what I do, right? Uh, but it is interesting, this whole idea of uh, collectivist societies and family. I mean, perspective and the individual um this is something that i i do a few lectures for psychiatry residents as a psychiatrist as an attending i guess psychiatrist now and that is something that we brought up when we're talking about acculturation of arab americans i talk about arab americans but in a lot of ways it's very similar to many cultures i'm not arab american but even to my culture and it is interesting i mean my husband and i have kind of talked about this like even just the differences we see in our own family and even between first and second generation um, Americans, actually, like we've noticed like our friends that are for the first generation, they're just so 
like giving and generous, like, come on over, doesn't matter, we'll make more food. And I, who get kind of anxious and like, I like cooking for like five people. (laughs) Beyond that, I get stressed out. And my husband's like, we just have to learn to be more generous, giving, not worrying about if everything is perfect. My mom tells me that too, that I'm too perfectionistic and OCD about certain things. Um, but I that's can interesting. To this just from getting this whole podcast set up, I'm like, "Good <laughs> lord, just do it!" <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it kind of reminds me, though. So, I mean, so what I mean is, even it's interesting as we're getting Americanized and acculturated. I almost feel like I, even as me and my nuclear family, I'm becoming even more individualistic, like just more sometimes hesitant to welcome people in or like letting people stay. I just, again, maybe it's a perfectionism or having things exactly right. But there is a tradition um, in Islam where um, it said that there is a, there is a, a land where there was people that were, you know, doing bad things or, you know, whatever. And then there was this person, this individual, and maybe you've heard the story who was very pious and spent all of his time alone praying, praying to God. Um, and that, God, the angel, you know, basically the angel tells God, well, there is this one man that is being, you know, obedient servant and he's worshiping you. And God actually asked for that person to be accountable, the first one to be accountable, because it's not enough to be alone and by yourself. And we're not talking about individual, just individual relationship with God. That spirituality and that connection, exactly as you said, is through the people. If you're not with the people, then you are not you know, you don't kind of, you don't afford that kind of maybe even mercy or, you know, so it's a really powerful story, I think, and something that you made me kind of remember. What surah is it? Do you remember? It's, I have zero idea. <laughs> it's not in the Quran. It's oh, a, a um, hadith. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's more of like a, a tradition. It's a hadith, I believe. I was thinking of surah so, 49. Oh my gosh, your knowledge is better than mine. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know that. But I mean, I'm just struck by it. It just says, oh, mankind, we created you different tribes and yes. nations and you know, so and the and the person who most knows the other mm-hmm. is the most noble. And it was just That's like true. anyway, I'm I'm rambling. I you can tell my love for Islam, but especially these days. Calvin, did you have an answer to the question you posed? No, no. Uh, to your own question. I, I wow. have the same I, I asked a question hoping that someone somewhere has the answer. No one's given that to me yet. And maybe there is no answer. Maybe it's gonna be different for every person. Um but well, I think uh, living yeah, right I, I now. Mean, it's, it's a tough question. I'm, I'm asking myself that same question every mm-hmm. single day. I think we're learning that we can't, we cannot take anything for granted, that we can't afford that, if you want to call it luxury of being <sighs> isolative and by ourselves. I mean, we have to work together. That's what this is all about. I mean, that's not I mean, really a solution, well, but it's that this is not, you know, maybe that way is not sustainable. Now, you're also it's going to psych- affect different people in different ways, though. Yeah. You're a psychiatrist. I mean, I used to work for, uh, for Verizon Wireless. And I moved downtown Detroit. I had a studio apartment. I bought this gathering table. And my my heart was to open the door to my small little apartment and cook meals for people. And then I started working this sales job. And this sales job was high pressure. And I got home and all I wanted to do was be alone. I didn't want to... I didn't want to deal with what all the drama was on Facebook. I just wanted to Netflix and and play some video games. That was really what I wanted to do. And I do wonder if that might be what keeps people from getting involved. Like I got a kid. I got four kids. This one's in soccer. This one's in baseball. This one's, you know, in track. This one's in drama. I got I got to worry about them. I mean, you've got what, three adult kids, is that correct? Three adult kids. So you get bogged down with life and then there's 
war and there is poverty and there's, you know, still unclean drinking water in Flint. What, six or seven years later at this point, there are so many things that we could could care about. But your number one priority is also to your at least is what I grew up in. Your number one priority is to your nuclear family. My mom and my dad, they paid attention to their kids first. Anything they had energy left over for, then they they pay attention to that. So I wonder if that plays into no, it as well. So. As speaking as a mom of four, one is, one is in soccer, not the other sports you mentioned. <laughs> you know, the, uh, I definitely think there's something to it. That the Christian scriptures, when when Jesus peace be upon him describes what it means, how you get into the kingdom of God or heaven, what it's like, and he talks about the sheep and goats, and they said, well, when did we see you? Well, when you fed the poor, when you clothed the naked, that's when you saw me. And it, it was sort of like it was done as a way to. In, Pal people toward the other, but I think the Gran Torino movie. I don't watch many movies, but Clint Eastwood was in it, and I think well, you kind of look like. Let's I was just be thinking honest. that kind of looks like. Clint well, Eastwood. to those of you who are uh, listening, <laughs> it's a good thing because I have a face for radio. Yeah. But anyway, uh, in that movie, he is this. Get off my lawn! Yeah, he's this auto worker, and he has no. He's a prototypical kind of redneck Archie Bunker, relationally challenged cat. His neighbors are the monk, members of the monk community, and gradually. He has need for this, these folk. He, as much as he tried to push him away. And so a question, well, who are my heroes? My heroes are people who have every reason to tell you where to go, but gently continue to come toward you, who have such spiritual maturity that even if you are the aggressor or the oppressor, they're bringing love to you and they're reaching out to form the scaffolding upon which you can connect. And this movie tells a great story hmm. how in his sickness and how he eventually came to know that person and care about that person, but it didn't start that way. And I think to your point, Calvin, I just don't think, I don't, until there's in this individualistic society and the way we're raised and we have all we need, why do I need that person? And 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 there may be narrative about that person because we otherize them, but boy, when there's that chink in your armor and we need the other person, I think until we have that humility, the other person will be the other person. That's very good. That's very good. Wow. Amazing conversation. I'm really glad that you were here, Calvin, because I just was soaking it all in and taking it all in. And you were like actively listening. Great questions. And uh, I'm just like, wow. Um, just really amazed by everything that kind of came forth. I think we, you know, I uh, I sent Steve some questions ahead of time, and I think we actually kind of got through everything. One of the things I was interested in your perspective was, and in, which you definitely talked mm-hmm. about, was kind of um, in what ways have you seen your local community change throughout your lifetime? And I think that definitely was woven into this whole conversation. But anything that you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, so I live in Plymouth, Canton. And in 2008, we got a Ford Foundation grant and we picked three communities in Michigan. One of them was Plymouth, Canton. Plymouth, Canton was 95% white in the 90s. And now it's 65% white. Share Those three communities share a common school district. Mm -hmm. And the last black man hired as a teacher had been 1985. Everybody elected to political office, school boards, was all white. And so we started a community change initiative. We had money to actually set the table. And um, yeah, so now, um, what, nine, eight years later, nine years later, we saw now just this month, just this year, a black woman was hired as the first black person hired to the Canton Board of Trustees, Summer Foster. That group started a campaign called uh, public, Looking at Public Life and How People of Underrepresented Groups Become Elected to Office. So eight years later, not it's not just because the roundtable was there. I mean, it was like, and in 2010, the school district, how are we going to hire teachers that look like the people, our students? And so 
the black community, the Muslim community, the school district, all the planets were lining up and they hired a hundred teachers that summer because of buyouts. 24 were teachers of color. One was Zainab Selman mm-hmm. who taught my, when my kids were at the school and was one of the most remarkable teachers in Michigan. I, I you know, I don't mean to patronize you, but you're going to win teacher of the year one year, Zainab. Um, I was hoping she was going to be here today. She said yeah. she was going to try to come. That would have been great. So, so that was a change, right? But it was getting people to again be on the same page to want to make their community better. I mean, it's like you tell a CEO, why do you want to do DNI and the diversity and inclusion in the workplace? Because it makes your business, your profit better. It also improves your house values and your communities. So I guess one thing I've seen is where citizens come together and work with leadership, things change. So, but how is it, how is it impacting the numbers in the schools, right? How, how is it really translating to the everyday lives of people who are on the margins? And to that question, I think we still have to be asking the others, how is life for you? So I don't stop just because I've been Captain Diversity, right? And I've been working on this. There's still people for me to meet and ask, how is your experience? And I don't, I think when we stop asking that question, then we don't know. So. Well, it's definitely a learning process. And I mean, you really exemplify lifelong learning and growing. Um, so I'm, thank you again. I'm just so, welcome. so happy that we were able to have this conversation with you and learn more about you learn and really learn about through you, um, just how much our community has changed, um, and how, you know, the ups and downs and hopefully that gives us hope for the future too. You know, I mean, many of us have been very, um, anxious and depressed, I think over the past few months, but we can't allow that um, those feelings to lull us into complacency. And, and you definitely exemplify just the conversations that re- reaching out activism in so many, in just a myriad of ways. So I really, I mean, thank you. Thank you for being here. And I know Welcome. that when I invited you, you were very humble and, you know, I had to kind of keep asking you a few times because you don't, you know, see yourself as an unsung hero, but you really exemplify everything that I really wanted to share. Thank you. With my audience. Saba. Thank you, Calvin. <laughs> thank you, Jessica. <laughs> So thank you everybody for tuning in to um as we kind of conclude this fourth episode. Uh we do have a Facebook page now called Unsung Heroes Stories to Inspire and um we are also up on iTunes which makes it easier to tune in. Um so please leave us a comment, uh leave a review on iTunes. Uh please share this podcast. Again, these are supposed to be inspirational conversations and stories and I feel inspired for sure after this conversation. Again, I think there's a lot of you know, a lot of good people out there. Sometimes we just need a little bit of a push. We don't really know how we want to change the world, but just the people that I know that I've met that I've come across and many people that I've, you know, have yet to meet. I think we have goodness in our hearts and we just need a little bit of a spark or a little push in the right direction. So thank you everyone for tuning in and, um, join us next time. And also actually, um, Steve, you mentioned, um, the Gudwara and the Sikh community. I was going to tell you too, sorry adding this in here episode two go back and listen to episode two that was actually an interview that i did with nicole Beatty. um she is married uh, her husband is Sikh. they're raising their children Sikh, and she has a really amazing story too i look forward to it thank you so much for being here thank you calvin thank you jessica and we'll be here next next time Like Abbey Road